following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Last week we uh, celebrated the day of Pentecost, which is the church's remembrance of the events that you can read about in Acts chapter 2, where this, the Holy Spirit uh, came to the early Christians who were gathered together and uh, descended in this room and people had flames on their head and started speaking in other languages and uh, everybody was proclaiming the gospel and all of the multicultural, multilingual visitors to Jerusalem who were there for that feast heard the gospel of Christ proclaimed in their own language. That miracle and that beautiful uh, day is what we observed last week. And we had um, the uh, scripture texts read aloud in many different languages, five different languages if you count English, which maybe we should. And we also had um, different lay people at Artisan sharing devotional reflections, kind of living into that beautiful miracle of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters, young and old, even slave and free, uh, everybody prophesying. And so that's what we celebrated last week. And if you, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go listen to the podcast. You can listen to it on our website or you can find our podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts and um, go listen to that. It's a wonderful chance to hear this kind of multilingual, multivocal experience that happened uh, at Artisan last week. Um, <clears throat> now, we wanted, I wanted to spend an extra week thinking about Pentecost, um, which kind of goes against the, the Christian calendar. Right now we're in uh, what's called the season after Pentecost. It's not a very creative name, but that's what it is. And it lasts all summer long until we get to Advent. Um, but I wanted to spend one more week thinking about Pentecost and about the Holy Spirit because what happened was that in the wake of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church grew, not just in size, that happened too, but also in their understanding of God and of God's world. The coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church guided and shaped everything that the church would do in its early years. And I believe that the Spirit continued to be present in the life of the church ever since, including among us now, today. Although we haven't always had our eyes open to see or our ears open to hear or the courage to act, the Spirit is still at work and still wants to be at work. And so I wanted to look uh, at the, the, what, the, what life in the Spirit looked like for the early Christian church, how they saw the Spirit at work in their midst in those early days. And I want that to be for us a model for how we might look for the Spirit to be at work in our midst. And so what I did was as I prepared this message, I, I looked at every instance uh, of the Greek word for spirit in the book of Acts, which is, of course, this, the, the book that, in the Bible that tells the story of the early church. Um, now, almost all of those have something to do with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the word is used differently, uh, might refer to an evil spirit or um, somebody being troubled in their spirit, something like that. But most of those 70 instances of this word refer to the Holy Spirit and its work in the early church. By the way, that word is, uh, in Greek is pneuma, with a P, P-N-E-U-M-A, and it means a movement of air. So you might think of a breath, or a breeze, or a wind, which is why I've got windmills as the central image of this series graphic, because I like to think of us as windmills of the Holy Spirit. If the breath of God blows among us, and uh, those 
those big arms on the windmills in our hearts start to turn, we will be energized and empowered to do the work of God and to join, more importantly, to join God in the work that God's already doing among us. So as I read each of these verses uh, where this word appears in the book of Acts, I saw some trends, three trends in particular, three ways that the Spirit was at work, three effects of the Spirit on the people. Um, I saw that the Spirit filled people, that the Spirit directed people, and that the Spirit challenged people. And not just people, individuals, but the whole church. And so what I want to do is talk about these three ways that the Spirit affected the church. But really what I want to do is get to that last one. So being filled with the Spirit and directed by the Spirit really push the church into being challenged by the Spirit in a particular way. And so I just need to tell you right now that the end game for this sermon is challenging. We are going to be challenged just as the early church was challenged. So that's your fair warning. Uh, but let's start with the, with the beginning, being filled with the Spirit. This phrasing is used at least eight times in the book of Acts, and it's used of people who are uh, speaking boldly. So if somebody's preaching a sermon or responding to accusations um, or even uh, condemning a false prophet, that kind of thing, that person is often said to have been full of the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. It's used as a uh, necessary qualification for the deacons, those early servant leaders that the church set aside in its uh, earliest days. Those people who were chosen as deacons, one of the requirements was that they were filled with the Spirit. This was a thing that the church was aware of. It's used kind of more generally of people who are joyful or people who are uh, otherwise understood to be good, honorable, decent Christians. But one of the most poignant instances where this phrase, filled with the Spirit, is used is is in Acts chapter 7. This is the story about how Stephen, who is one of the deacons who was chosen by the church, has been accused of blasphemy. And uh, he's on trial before the the Jewish leaders. And in his response to them about the accusation of blasphemy, he becomes very critical of these unbelieving Jewish leaders. Uh, I mean... Very critical. And they become hostile. And they, they're gnashing their teeth. Okay, they're coming after him. And then in verse 55, you get this phrase. It says, But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this was both the right thing to say because it was true and the wrong thing to say because it was the last straw for them. And they seize him and drag him out to the edge of town and they begin to stone him, executing him for the sin of blasphemy. And his last words before he died were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Interesting. Offering forgiveness to his murderers, as they are carrying out the sentence of execution. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is Stephen showing us the heart of Jesus who shows us the heart of the Father. And by the way, standing there nearby, kind of uh, watching over the coats 
that all of the people had taken off to stone Stephen was a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, a man who would later convert to the faith, start using his Roman name, Paul, and then who would lead the geographic expansion of Christianity into all of the known world. So Stephen, at the time of his trial and death, is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the first effect that the Spirit had on the church. It filled the believers. Have we been filled with the Holy Spirit ourselves, I wonder? The second one, the Holy Spirit directed people. Now this one is pretty simple. We can cover it very quickly. There are several occasions in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit gives a person or people a specific direction. Go there. Do that. Say this. Maybe about seven times you see this kind of thing. The word directed is not always used, but that's what it is. Um, Sometimes it's sort of an opposite direction where the Spirit forbids people from doing something they were otherwise going to do. The Spirit prevented them from going to this place or that place. And as the people follow the Spirit's direction, God blesses them in the church, and that is uh, a key part of the spread of the gospel in the early church is that people were directed by the Spirit to do something specific, and they obeyed. Earlier, when we had our moment of confession, I asked you to think about times when you sensed the Spirit directing you to do something, and you chose not to do it. We've all had those moments. The Holy Spirit continues to prod us to give us this kind of direction. Do we cover our ears and say, la, la, la? Do we pretend we can't hear? Or do we obey? Being filled with the Spirit and being directed by the Spirit ultimately, ultimately lead the church to be challenged by the Spirit. And here is where things get really interesting. Because the Holy Spirit didn't just challenge individuals, although I think that's probably part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But this was, this was more than a, just a matter of sending someone into a difficult situation, right? Sometimes those directions that people received were difficult, even dangerous to respond to. But no, this, this was a challenge to the whole church. And it went to the very core of their understanding of who they were. It went to the very core of their understanding of how God's world was organized. Amen, Olive. (laughs) It went to the very core of how they interpreted their holy scriptures. Can you see why this was so challenging. So what I want to do is give you three examples here. Because this isn't just an isolated incident. This is a progression, an unfolding process in the early church. Now normally I would not try to fit a three-point sermon inside a three-point sermon. That's not usually the way I roll. But I need you to see the breadth of this movement. And so what we'll do is we'll go fast. (laughs) Okay. 
If, if you have too much to say, just say it faster. <laughs> People will understand that way. <laughs> well, my hope is that this will make sense. All right, here's the first one. Acts chapter 8. We read about one of the early Christian leaders, Philip, and his encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. Um, do we know what a eunuch is? Okay, a eunuch is a person whose genitals have been removed or mutilated or who didn't have them in the first place at birth. Right? Therefore, somebody who is prevented from uh, participating in temple worship. This is one of those occasions where the Spirit directed someone, specifically the Spirit directed Philip, to go up to a chariot where this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, was reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he he didn't understand what he was reading, and he asked Philip to explain it to him. And Philip, it says, starting with this scripture and going on, proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And the key moment comes in verse 36. And here it is on the screen. As they're going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? See, Philip had explained to him how it worked. The people who believe in Jesus are baptized. That's part of the story he would have explained to him. And this eunuch, this outcast who until this moment had been barred from the temple of God, had been prohibited from worshiping God fully, had been prohibited from full participation in the life of the people of God. They get down out of the chariot. Philip takes him and baptizes him. That's the first story. Second story comes a couple chapters later. It's Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. Now, this is a complicated story, and I'll do my best <laughs> to say it quickly. Uh, the apostle Peter has a dream uh, about the Jewish dietary laws. Right? Part of what made a, a good Jew a good Jew was observing these laws. And meanwhile, a Roman centurion, which is to say a Gentile, not a Jew, named Cornelius, is instructed by an angel to go and find Peter. So there's these two kind of directions that happen at once, and they they meet in the middle, and the key moment comes in verse 44 of chapter 10. It says, while Peter was still speaking to Cornelius and his Gentile friends, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And then Peter asks this amazing question. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then similarly, in the next chapter, Peter has gone back to the assembly of the Christian believers. And this is how he describes what happens. He says, the Spirit told me to go with them, that is these Gentiles, and not to make a distinction between them and us. Listen for this, them and us, us and them language here. As I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, on them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I 
that I could hinder God. So the first story is of an Ethiopian eunuch, an outcast who's baptized into the faith. And the second story is Peter and Cornelius and the Spirit being given to these Gentiles. The Spirit is clearly at work here, but it's challenging them. These good, observant Jews who had become Christians were having their entire worldview challenged by the Spirit of God. And so the third story is where the church officially and formally recognizes this work of the Spirit among them. It's found in Acts chapter 15. It's known as the Jerusalem Council. We think of it as the first official council of the church. So the, Spirit, the work of the Spirit had led to many Gentiles being converted to Christianity, and there was a huge debate about how Jewish these Gentiles would have to become once they became Christians. Should they begin to follow all the dietary laws that they'd never followed their whole life because they weren't subject to them because they weren't Jewish? Should the males who convert be circumcised? Which they didn't have to be because they weren't Jewish? And it says the apostles and the elders met together, they met in Jerusalem, to consider this matter. Which is um, a soft way of saying to argue about this question. There was much argument. And Peter and Paul and the others who had seen this firsthand shared all these amazing stories of Gentiles being converted to Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. telling the stories of what was formerly us and them, sort of apparently becoming just us. And the church makes a key decision. It's articulated by James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He says this, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. Another translation says, we should not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead of laying the whole law on them, we should just give them the essentials. We don't want to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. And in reporting this decision to those Gentile believers who were probably maybe particularly the men, waiting on pins and needles for, the, for what the church's decision would be. James says what I find to be one of the most amazing things that anybody says in the whole Bible. He says to them, he writes to them and says, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. And then he gives them what the essentials are. You catch what he says there? I love this statement. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. (laughs) We would never do anything like that. When we write these letters to people, we make sure that they understand it's just God's word. We had nothing to do with it. We are just the messengers. 
But no, James and these early apostles recognize that they need, it's, it's required that they have a profound sensitivity to God and what God is doing, but also that there is a need for human participation because we live in the world that we live in and we're all here. And if we don't move it forward, what is there? So what we see in all three of these stories is an incredible opening of the kingdom, a a widening of the path to fellowship with God. What we see is an enlargement of God's blessed family. People who were previously prevented from coming near to God, people who were previously assumed to be perpetually outside because of how they were born, were given full access to God's kingdom. Why? Because the Holy Spirit said so. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it fell on us at the beginning. It's easy for us to look back at this and think of it as a neat story. Not not too dramatic. But we ought to recognize what this was. It was a complete reordering of the world. It was a complete upending of what the people in the early church would probably have seen as the plain reading of Scripture. This was not some first century political correctness. This was not social activism. This was not people deciding to abandon Scripture in favor of new cultural norms. This was not a human movement at all. It was a spiritual movement. It was pneumatic. And furthermore, it was a response to what the Spirit of God had already done. Basically, what happened was the church decided that they were not going to get in the way. Oh, Lord Jesus, if the church could decide today that we are not going to get in the way of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Now I want to suggest to you that we all stop and think, and some of you already are, about whether our own widely accepted understanding of God and His world, whether our own so-called plain reading of Scripture might just be preventing us from seeing God's work among people right under our noses. Who are the people in our community, in our world, about whom it might be time to say, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Who are the people who we can think about in our world and then say, who are we? 
that we should hinder God. Maybe even we might think about saying something like, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. You see why I told you at the beginning that this was going to push toward challenge, that we are going to be challenged by these stories? The Holy Spirit didn't just challenge the church in the first century. The Holy Spirit challenged the church in the fifth century, in the tenth century, in the sixteenth century, in the nineteenth century, in the twentieth century. And now the Holy Spirit is challenging us in the 21st century. But it does require some discernment. What we have to look for is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. After all, that is what made the early church go to this place, isn't it? They didn't just do it because they felt like it. They did it because the Spirit had already done it. And their decision was, get in the way or get out of the way. And in the course of getting out of the way, you can get back in the way and you ride that wave like a surfer. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. But we have to look for the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the key. If we are ever going to think about breaking with long tradition of church, long understanding of Scripture, which is what the early church did, don't sugarcoat that. If we're going to try to make that sort of move, we had better be sure that we see the work of the Spirit among us. And more importantly, that we see the work of the Spirit in communities where we would otherwise maybe think the Spirit had no interest So how do we discern that? Well, uh, I could probably, and maybe should, spend not only a whole sermon, but a whole sermon series thinking about how we discern the work of the Spirit. But I do think that there is one fairly clear and fairly simple test. Right? We have a lot of scientists in the room, right? You like a test, don't you? If you have a hypothesis, what do you do? You test it. And if you see that it's Not true, you let go. That's one of the things that the scientists are so much better at than the uh, religious people. (laughs) Anyway, once again, topic for another day. I'm going to have to do this quickly, and it probably doesn't do justice to to, to the weight of what I want to give you here, but I I feel like I've got to give you at least this much. If you look in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, Verses 16 through 22. If you'd like to look it up in the Red Bibles, you can. You can look it up in the Bible you brought with you. If you brought one, that's fine. Whatever works for you. If you want to look it up later, write it down. You can do that. This is a letter that Paul wrote to one of the early Christian churches, and it has become part of our our scriptural canon. And it has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit. So it fits. Here's what he says. Live by the Spirit, I say. And do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. And what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. 
And then he explains what he means. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Here it comes, guys. <laughs> Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, if you engage in these works of the flesh, it will be a barrier for you to full participation in God's kingdom. And then he says this, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, and some of you had to memorize this in Sunday school, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. How did the early Christian church leaders recognize that these, something was going on, that God was doing something among the Gentiles that they wouldn't have predicted or expected and which some of them were ultimately unable to accept? They saw them praising God. They saw them speaking in tongues sometimes. They saw them with visible evidence of the Holy Spirit. What could we look to to see the visible evidence of the Holy Spirit in other people? Maybe particularly as we look at people who we are disinclined to include within our Christian church. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This is the test. You put in the stimulus and you get the response. Am I using those words right, science friends? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a humanities guy. I dabble. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you look at a person and what you see is fornication, impurity, licentiousness, envy, drunkenness, carousing, etc., 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 and things like these, well, that's the works of the flesh. It's pretty obvious to see that, isn't it? If you look at a person and see instead love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that is the fruit of the Spirit. Those things don't happen except when the Holy Spirit is working in the life of a person. So, my, uh, as humble as I can make it, appeal to all of us is if you see the fruit of the Spirit in your neighbor, get out of the way. If God wants to include that person, and if God has already included that person, you have two choices. You can include them yourself, and you can ride that wave as terrifying and exhilarating as it might be, or you can get out of the way. The early church did not look at birth once they realized what was going on. They did not look at a person's station in life. They did not look 
at all the requirements that they had always assumed were there because they read them in their scriptures. They looked instead for the fruit of the Spirit. May we look for the same. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, your work among us is so often what we do not expect. And sometimes it's even hard for us to accept. Give us courage. Give us grace. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts that we could see and hear and recognize and love the work that you are doing and already have done in our friends and neighbors. Help us to know how to join you in that work. To invite their spiritual fruit and giftedness into our own communities, which so often are stale and dry and still because we have failed to see the work of the wind, of the breath of God, of you, Holy Spirit. This is a difficult road to walk and we ask you humbly to lead us, to inspire us, to protect us, and most of all, to show us the work that you're doing with people. We want to be part of all of your work in the world, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Let us see it. Let us act on it, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, the Holy Spirit is the, it's just the great leveling. Right? And that's one of the things we always say about communion. The, the table of the Lord is, is the great leveling of the kingdom. Jesus offers the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, to all who would come and receive it. It's my privilege as a pastor to invite all of you who would come and receive it to do so now. We'll sing out a couple songs together. There'll be a member of the prayer team here if you'd like to have prayer. The table of the Lord is open now, offered to each of you. May it be for you the body and blood of our Savior. May it be for you food for your hungry spiritual souls. And may it be an act of communion, community, and unity with each other, with all of the people who confess Christ, with all of the people on whom the Spirit has descended just as it did on us at the beginning. Come to this table of unity, if you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.